Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. This week, Caroline, we're going to take a trip. Take a little trip, take a little trip, into the hollow earth. We're going to take a trip inside of the hollow earth. Purported hollow earth. Inside the hollow earth. (laughs) Oh, you're a firm believer of this conspiracy already, huh? If if by conspiracy you mean scientific theorem? Proposed by some of the greatest thinkers of the... Reddit? (laughs) 18th and 19th centuries? Mm Mm-hmm. Then yes. Okay. Well, what is the hollow earth? Uh, It seems self-explanatory, but what's the gist of this theory? Well, the hollow earth, hollow earth theory, as we'll call it. Must we? Is the idea that the earth um, is partially or completely hollow on the inside. That's fairly self-explanatory. Yep. I think we got that part. Um, the modern scientific understanding of our planet is that we have a crust um, with a, a mantle inside consisting of uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, hotter molten rock as well as heavier metals and then a liquid metal core. That would be the heaviest uh, uh, part. That's pretty much solid all the way through. But that hasn't always been our understanding. And actually, you can kind of think of this episode, if you want, as being brought to you by... Godzilla versus Kong. Oh God! And Zilla. very light, very light spoilers. Uh, jump ahead about I don't know a minute or so if you're afraid of Godzilla versus Kong like spoilers. Atmospheric uh, spoiler: He goes up against Kong. Atmospheric spoilers for Godzilla versus Kong. There's a lot of talk about uh, the Hollow Earth in that movie. And they refer to it that way, as the hollow earth, like it's a place. Like, we have to get Kong to the hollow earth. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, Kong's ancestors must have come from the hollow earth. Wouldn't it be the earth's hollow? Yeah, or just Because he's already on a hollow earth. Just inside the earth. You know, you could yeah. say from the center of the earth if you were being real loose and poetic with it. Mm-hmm. This isn't a new idea, Caroline. Oh, my, sorry. My point with the, with the Godzilla was that that has, I've been thinking about the Hollow Earth. In fact, just those words. We got to get him to the Hollow Earth, resonating through my head for uh, weeks and months now. Because it's absurd. Yeah, because because <laughs> because the way they used it in that movie was absurd. Um, this idea, Carrie, is not new. And while we have our theories, and they're backed up by a lot of math and science about uh, what the inside of the Earth looks like. The truth is, the deepest hole ever dug. How deep do you think? How how far have we gone? Mm, couple miles. The Cola Super Deep Borehole, which is also what Caroline calls my mouth when I'm on a Pepsi binge, <laughs> uh, is seven and a half miles deep. That's a hole dug in the seventies or maybe the eighties by wow, the Soviets. We dug anything? deeper than that since then and that was dug just specifically as a scientific experiment to see how deep they could dig that seems like a soviet thing to do yeah well you kind of like trying to get to the moon right (sighs) those cosmonauts though you just check back to our cosmonaut episode (laughs) um yeah even the deepest mines are usually only two to three miles yeah i think we've only gone that amount of uh, distance underwater too 
So seven miles is is a lot of digging. <laughs> it's a lot of digging. And to get to the center of the earth, you would just need to go about 4,000 miles deeper. Honestly... Who even? I would think who, it would I don't be even more. Wanna, I don't, honestly, I don't even want to go there. <laughs> it sounds hot. <laughs> it is hot and, and molten super rocks, high. like like melted rock. Yeah, like what the lava that comes out of volcanoes is coming from the the mantle of the earth, the hollow earth. Sorry, it's coming from the <laughs> hollow of the earth. Oh, so lava is lava melted rock? Yeah, magma is melted rock. It's called magma. lava. It's called lava once it comes out of a volcano. Oh, interesting. I didn't do very well in geology. Did you take geology? Uh, there was a semester in there. Wow. During like earth science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're talking about it. I think you took like geology 101 in college. Oh, no. I took astronomy. I like the stars, baby. Mm-hmm. Anything that could be vaguely close to aliens uh, was going to be my choice. Well, we'll hear from a number of astronomers in this episode. Oh, you would think that they wouldn't be interested. Well, they're all mathematicians is, is the thing. And, and mm. it's all about, well, we'll get to it. Okay. The idea that the earth is hollow is not a new one. Stories of underground or underworld realms go back as far as basically humans have been telling stories, right? In ancient Greece, the underworld was the land of the dead. Mm -hmm. um, in some tellings, literally underground and some across the sea somewhere, you know. Uh, it was ruled over by Hades, the god of the unseen. And uh, the ancient Greeks believed that certain very deep caverns in southern Greece were actual entrances to that underworld. That it was like a physical, you know, place you could go to. Well, just like they thought the mountain Olympus was Mount Olympus. Mm -hmm. Ringed in clouds, can't see what's up there, must be the gods. Might as well. In Hindu religion and some of the other Dharmic religions, the underworld is Patala which is a richly perfumed paradise populated by Nagas, who are snake people, as well as sexy demons and mischievous spirits. Ritually perfumed. Uh, richly perfumed, not ritually perfumed. Richly perfumed? Yeah. It's With what? It's described as, like, more beautiful than heaven. I like a good smell. You know that. Yeah, no. So the Patala might be the place for you. Maybe we've got to start finding some holes to jump into. <laughs> Go jump into a hole. <laughs> um, the Zohar, which is one of the foundational texts for Kabbalah, um, describes seven earths, each underneath the last and each populated by humanoid creatures. Mm. It goes on to describe some of these. And uh, like there's one whole level that's just centaurs, basically, uh, but all different kind of centaurs. <laughs> um, Interesting. And one of the levels has little guys who are short. Uh, and have like little <laughs> slit noses and big eyes. So they really kind of sound like grays. Huh. Very interesting. Um, the Mandan, a Great Plains Indian tribe, believed that their ancestors emerged from inside the earth at a cave somewhere on the northern side of the Mississippi River. And there's similar stories among some of the Iroquois people. Huh. And among the Inca and indigenous Brazilians. All have stories of their ancestors emerging from uh, systems of caves underneath the ground. It's interesting. Um, if if they're not coming from up on high, they're coming from down below. Yeah. Um, and it's been a popular idea in science fiction, or it, it especially was a very popular idea in early science fiction, 
of the 19th and early 20th centuries. You've got Jules Verne with Journey to the Center of the Earth. Um, Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe covered this in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. And uh, Edgar Loved Rice... Loved a long title, that Edgar. That's right. And uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, with his Pellucidar series, which was about a whole kind of alien civilization under the ground. H.D. Wells, too, with the time machine. Yes, they with the, the Morlocks. The Morlocks, the mole people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we were fascinated with this idea of like, oh, what could there's so much earth underneath our feet. What could lie down there? Same thing with 20,000 leagues under the sea, I guess, right? The, the oceans are so vast. We still don't know. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until the late 1600s that someone took a scientific stab at a theory of a hollow earth. And uh, this actually came from a pretty high-profile source, none other than Edmund Halley. Um, mm. Halley was a British astronomer, Caroline. <laughs> Never said he wasn't. And a contemporary of Isaac Newton's. And uh, he is the guy who Halley's comet is named after. It's his comet. Now, it wasn't named after him until after he died, because he calculated the periodicity of Halley's comet, like when it would come back around. In 1705, using Newton's laws of motion, and um, he was already dead when it came back in 1758, but they were like, oh, look at that. Halley was right. So they mm-hmm. named it Halley's Comet after him. Hmm. Um, Edmund Halley proposed in a 1692 article, a hollow earth consisting of a shell 500 miles thick, and under that, two inner concentric shells, smaller, inside like Majorska dolls. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what that word even is. Um, and then an inner core in the middle. Russian dolls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are they called Majorska dolls? Um, I don't know if it's Majorska, but it's something like Mariachi that. Mariachi dolls? It can't, that can't be right. Mariachi dolls. <clears throat> Each shell would have its own atmosphere and its own magnetic poles, and each would rotate at a different speed. It sounds chaotic. You see, Halley proposed all this to account for the fact that compass readings, this had been plaguing mathematicians and navigators for years, compass readings would actually shift from year to year because the Earth's magnetic fields aren't actually totally stable. Mm -hmm. You can see how that would be uh, vexing if you were trying to get around using only a compass in the middle (laughs) of the ocean. And so um, it was a problem that they were eager to solve or at least be able to predict. Um, Halley thought that the shifts in the magnetic fields might be because there's other magnetic poles rotating around inside of the Earth. He also thought the aurora borealis might be caused by escaping luminous gases that help people live their lives inside of the hollow Earth. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, this actually all comes back to Isaac Newton himself. He had an error in his Principia, which was like his big text with a bunch of his just kind of findings from his career. Here's all the science stuff was basically what the Principia was. Um, and in there, he calculated the ratio of the mass of the moon to the mass of the earth as one to 26. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got it wrong. He was using the tides and, and the, he just was off in his method. The, the, the modern estimate is closer to one to 81. Oh, big difference. Big difference. Um, but so with Newton's numbers, Halley was like, well, but the Earth's so much bigger than the moon. Yeah. Why moon so heavy? (laughs) Earth hollow? Question mark? Question mark? Listen, Newton nailed the gravity thing. After that, he didn't have to work a day in his life. Yeah, sure. 
He was also he he remained he was a hugely important rock star, and his um laws of motion really really revolutionized the way that we viewed everything in physics. Scientific rock star. Yes. <laughs> Is there any other kind? Uh, you know, a Mick Jagger. Halley's ideas found um, a lot of purchase in academic circles in England, and uh, it wasn't long before they made it over to America, to the New World. Right. And this happened through a through a Halley devotee who you might not expect, the famed New England preacher Cotton Mather. <sighs> Cotton Mather. Now, Cotton Mather, we'll hear more about when my beautiful wife finally covers the Salem witch trials. We hate him. We're not fans. In The Christian Philosopher, 1721, which was a book Cotton Mather, who was fascinated with science and also with God, um, he wrote this book to kind of get people more interested in science because he thought these new scientific discoveries were like the ultimate expression of God's um, wonder and majesty. And the more people know about this stuff, the more they'll be into God, basically. Mm-hmm. In The Christian Philosopher, Cotton Mather wrote regarding the hollow earth, quote, Sir Isaac Newton has demonstrated the moon to be more solid than the earth as nine to five. Why may then we not suppose four-ninths of our globe to be cavity? Mr. Halley allows there may be inhabitants of the lower story and many ways of producing light for them. The medium itself may be always luminous, or the concave arch may shine with such a substance as does invest the surface of the sun. Mm-hmm. So that was... <laughs> so that happened. That was printed and heavily read in the U.S., and that's where um, hollow earth kind of scientific thought, and I'm using big quotes around scientific there, um, made it to the new world. This continued being a matter of kind of some debate. Um, it seemed until the Shehelian experiment in 1774. Now, this was an experiment that had first actually been described by Isaac Newton in the same Principia that the Halley had gotten his, like, weird moon mass reading from. Mm -hmm. Newton thought, well, pendulums hang straight down if there's a symmetrical gravitational field, right? But since all objects produce gravity, he figured if you were near a mountain or something, the mountain would pull that pendulum slightly, 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 slightly out of true with where it should be hanging. Or a spirit would, if you have that belief. Sure, or a spirit would. <laughs> um, but Newton was really thinking of the gravity of it all. And so he thought if you were next to a very large mountain, uh, mountain-like object and you had a pendulum and you could measure how much that pendulum moved out of center alignment, as long as you knew the mass, volume, and density of that mountain you'd be able to do some math and figure out the mass, volume, and density of the Earth. Because you know how much the mountain is affecting the, that gravitational pull. Seems like a roundabout way to go about getting that information. Does it? How else? You can't weigh the Earth. Watch me. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like you could do a mathematical sort of thing. That's what he was trying to do, but you need... No, I know, but... <laughs> um. I don't know. How would you even measure that? I guess you had to get to the 70s or whatever where you can do that digitally or something like that. What, measuring the... The, the pendulum movement. Because you would think it wouldn't be that much. It's No, it's tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of degrees. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that's why Newton ultimately decided that this was just a theoretical thing. He figured the effect would be too small to measure, except on like a planetary scale. Mm -hmm. However, by early the next century, shortly after Newton's death, um, people were trying it. In Chimborazo, Peru in 1738, French astronomers Pierre Bourgeois and Charles-Marie de la Condamine, those are my attempts, (laughs) were in Peru on a voyage uh, where they were trying to measure the length of one degree of latitude. Wow. Sounds like a party. We had divided the Earth into degrees of latitude, right? But we didn't know the size of the Earth. Sure. So they were trying to measure what one degree of latitude was, so then you could just multiply that out and get the circumference. How did we... If we didn't know the the size of the Earth, how do we figure out how many degrees of latitude there were? If we didn't know what one degree was, how did we make it one degree? Do you know what I mean? Well, because they're degrees. They're parts of a whole. Okay, but how, how did we know how many parts there were if we don't know how much one part is? Well, if you're just dividing something up for purposes of like, I'll meet you by 3B or whatever, you don't need to... Divided into a certain number of chunks is just how many... It has many... to be even. So how would you not know what one chunk is? Look, if you if you take a pizza roller and you just roll it across the pizza, you're never going to have an uneven number of slices. But in this case, shouldn't each slice be the same exact size? Yeah, and they are. How did... Why did they have to measure what one slice was after we already dictated how many slices go in a pizza? Uh, I don't know. That's my question. It makes no sense. (laughs) I don't know, but I do know if you wanted to know what your latitude and longitude was, you would. You wouldn't like pull out a measuring tape. You would check the angle of the sun. It seems crazy to me to say... I can divide this pizza into eight slices, and they will be equal slices, but not know how big a slice is. What I'm telling you is that these guys were on a voyage to measure the length of one degree of latitude. Well, now, okay. While they were out there, they saw a nice mountain in Peru. As you do. That didn't have much stuff around it. To do this experiment Newton had described, it would be ideal to have a mountain that you could be very close up to the as close to the center as possible of. So maybe if it has very sheer faces on one side. Mm -hmm. And also you don't want anything else around it that could affect that gravitational pull. So ideally not surrounded by other mountains. Did they just hold this pendulum? No, you you set up a device to (laughs) hold it. I was going to say. And then what you do is you measure very precisely from a given fixed vantage point you measure the distance of that string or sorry not the string from the of the you, the distance of the pendulum from stars mhm did they know what the degrees were in this case what what do you mean the degrees between stars the distance yes they were able to measure 8 degrees of deflection due to the mountain so they knew what 1 degree of deflection actually was yeah i don't know what a degree of deflection of deflection well, is well they didn't know what 1 degree of longitude was or whatever oh i see what you're saying <laughs> a degree of deflection is it's just based on the mathematics of i'm not going to make our listeners l- listen to no. all the formulas here so it's no, just I a know. degree of deflection i i know what it is i took astronomy as you know <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, 
they were able to measure eight degrees of deflection in very difficult terrain where it was difficult for them to even climb to where they needed to go, let alone set up their equipment in a good way. Um, so Bourgeois wrote later that the experiment should be carried out on easier ground, like in England or somewhere, um, but that their kind of preliminary run at it had at least proved for sure that the Earth was not, quote, a hollow shell, as some have suggested. Hmm. So that was the understanding as early as 1738. But in Scotland in 1774, the Astronomer Royal of Great Britain, Neville Maskelyne, suggested that uh, the experiment be tried again, and that it would, quote, do honor to the nation where it was made. All right, Neville, let's do it. Implying they should do it in in Britain somewhere. Sure. Shehelion in Scotland was selected because it's a big mountain, once again, with a sheer north face away from other hills. Mm Mm-hmm. And they took measurements uh, with a pendulum on the north and south sides of the mountain and did a bunch of math that I don't understand at all and ended up calculating the density of the earth to within 20% error, according to like our modern understanding, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. Better than I could do. Um, they ended up, the, the earth is actually about 20% denser than they thought it was. But even according to his calculations, the Earth had about twice the density of Shehali on the mountain. Uh, okay. Which suggests that there's less space, right? If the Earth is about twice as dense as rocks, which are most of what a mountain is, then that suggests there's less space as you go deeper into the Earth and not more. Mm-hmm. And so that should settle the whole thing. No more hollow Earth, right? Uh, well, I know that's not it so so what happened well one of the heroes of hollow earth theory was born just six years after that shehelion experiment captain john cleve sims jr who was the nephew to john cleve sims john cleve sims was a a continental congress delegate can you be a junior and just be someone's nephew i'm getting to that (laughs) you see sims had been a continental congress delegate a revolutionary war hero and the chief justice of new jersey I don't even know what John Cleve Sims Jr.'s father's name was because I don't have I don't have it here. He wasn't named after his father. He was named after his uncle, but he was often referred to as Junior to distinguish himself from his famous relative. Junior. Uh, later, he was often referred to as Captain John Cleve Sims Jr. Captain Junior. Or just Captain John Cleve Sims for the same reason because his uncle wasn't a captain at any point. In 1802, at 22 years old, he got a commission as an ensign in the army. Commissioned officer, that's nice. You're going to get some some extra money. That was with his uncle's help, of course. And Sims served through the War of 1812 and got an honorable discharge in 1815. Along the way, he had married Marianne Lockwood, a widow with six kids, and had four more children with her. You know. So, leaving the service, it was time to make some money. He moved to with ten kids. You yeah. think he moved to St. Louis, a frontier boomtown, to get some work as a trader, and he sold goods to the army through his connections there, and, and um, his uncle, and potentially <laughs> a little bit through his uncle, and he also got a license to trade with the Fox Indians in the area. But he was unsuccessful enough that by 1819, he and his family were picking up and moving to Newport, Kentucky. Mm. But not before. In 1818, Sims published his famous Circular Number 1. 
Now, the following I have from an article written by Peter W. Cinema in Branch. That's kind of an online journal. It's the Britain Representation in 19th Century History. That's what it uh, stands for. Mm -hmm. On April 10th, 1818, Sims sent 500 pamphlets from St. Louis. Now, Sims said he spent considerable sums of his own money for printing and postage. Quote, one to each notable foreign government, reigning prince, legislature, city, college, and philosophical societies throughout the Union, and to individual members of our national legislature as far as the copies would go. Would you like to know what it said, Caroline? I would love to. To all the world! Nope. I declare that the Earth is hollow and habitable within, <laughs> containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and it is open at the poles at 12 or 16 degrees. I pledge my life in support of this truth and am ready to explore the hollow if the world will support and aid me in the undertaking. John Cleve Sims of Ohio, late captain of infantry, I have ready for the press a treatise on the principles of matter, wherein I show proofs of the above positions, account for various phenomena, and disclose Dr. Darwin's golden secret. My terms are the patronage of this and the new worlds. I dedicate my labors to my wife and her ten children. I select Dr. S. L. Mitchell, Sir H. Davy, and Baron Alex de Humboldt as my protectors. I ask 100 brave companions, well-equipped, to start from Siberia in the fall season with reindeer and sleighs on the ice of the frozen sea. I engage we find a warm and rich land stocked with thrifty vegetables and animals, <laughs> if not men. On reaching one degree northward of latitude 82, we will return in the succeeding spring. J.C.S. <sighs> There's a lot going on. Sims's own son, Americus, would later, later write... Americus! Would later write that the circular was, quote, overwhelmed with ridicule as the production of a distempered imagination or the result of partial insanity. <laughs> it was for many years a fruitful source of jest with the newspapers. Where did he get this theory? Like, what? He's just like a random captain in the army. Where... Why did he become a, a scientist? He was, A, read many of Halley's writings on the hollow earth, and he also was a amateur astronomer, not astronomer, really, but stargazer. He was a stargazer, mm -hmm. and he had spent a lot of time studying pictures of Saturn's rings and of the other planets in the solar system, and he, just from looking at pictures, basically, he had come to the sturdy conclusion that it's always the nature of any sphere to be hollow huh you see carrie when you look at saturn you can see that there's another saturn forming around it the rings right that's going to be a whole saturn eventually and inside it Ugh. is the old saturn right and so we're on just the outermost ring of this earth that has filled out to a degree that it's almost a whole sphere it's open at the top and bottom okay I guess a bunch of times staring at rings will do that to you. Now, Sims never produced or published the promised treatise he mentioned, mm -hmm. and he likely never wrote it. But he did hit the public lecture circuit, George Adamski style, for basically the rest of his life. And his follower, James McBride, wrote in 1826, Sims' theory of concentric spheres. A lot of tricky words there. Mm-hmm. Um, so while he never wrote it down himself, James McBride did, and, uh, it was originally published anonymously, and I just want to give you a brief taste of the introduction here. 
The author of the following pages does not write because he is a learned man. He is conscious of the reverse, in that his merits give him no claim to that appellation, neither does he make this attempt because he is well acquainted with either the new or the old theories of the earth. But, from having observed that the theory of concentric spheres has been before the world for six or seven years, without attracting the attention of the scientific, except in a very few instances, few besides the author himself, having come forward to advocate its correctness. I love when anything starts with a huge disclaimer of, listen, I know I'm dumb, but hear me out. I'm not educated. I don't know what people are saying about the earth these days. I don't know what people were saying about the earth in the old days. (laughs) Let's get into it. But why is no one talking about these concentric spheres? (laughs) McBride then lays out Sim's kind of complete unifying theory. He's built on uh, Edmund Halley's model a little bit by adding more spheres. The Earth is five concentric spheres. Go big or go home. Our surface and atmosphere being the outermost and largest one. Atmosphere. He wrote that the crust of our of our Earth is a thousand miles thick. That's twice as thick as uh, Halley was giving it. With an Arctic opening of 4,000 miles across and an Antarctic opening of 6,000 miles across. Okay. That's pretty big. Yep, but he had observed through his careful study of photographs of planets (laughs) that centrifugal force would produce large flattened openings on the top and bottom of any sphere that was rotating in space for long enough. Um, You can see there's bands of color on like Jupiter and that it's darker at the top and the bottom. Mm -hmm. Mars also appears darker at the top and the bottom. But that's not just a big hole. No, of course it's not. <laughs> but he looked at the, I think he literally looked at those pictures and went like, there's a big hole there. A couple of holes. Why not us? I guess. He described these holes into the interior of the earth as having such kind of a gentle curvature that you might walk in without even realizing it. Wow. Presumably un- until the sky above you is stone. Yeah. That's a bad surprise. In Sims cosmology, the spheres revolve at different speeds on different axes, so we're still accounting for those weird compass readings. But he says that the sun would shine in through those polar openings and radiate heat and light throughout the entire structure to allow humanoids to live on every level um, of the hollow earth. Okay. McBride, in the book version, points to northward migration in the winter as, as evidence for this. He says, why fishermen report that whales, fish, seals, polar bears, and muskox come down from the north in the spring. Why would they go north unless there's something there? <laughs> so they're all just going like this big whale just like going up and ooh, oh, into no. the <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> and Talk then, about a log flume. Yes. Oh, wait, that was in our other episode. Oh, yes, uh, that was a reference to a uh, Patreon minisode. (laughs) The end of the book is mostly McBride's pitch to please someone give us money for an expedition to the Arctic so that we can document these holes for ourselves. This was also the subject of most of Sim's speaking tour engagements. We're collecting money for this Arctic expedition. They never did the expedition. Mm. But Sim's was buried with full military honors. Uh, after he passed, May 30th, 1829. His son, Americus, later had a monument erected on the site. It was a hollow stone globe with <laughs> holes at the top and bottom. Hey, 
do what you love, you know? Sims is one example of a strange out there loner who managed to kind of build a, a community of friends around himself through these weird ideas. Um, and we've got another one for you right after the break, because in 1869, one man had the courage to flip the script on this whole hollow earth idea. Like, listen, man, what if the earth is hollow? But we're living on the inside. Wow. After the break. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. You're here, which means you love podcasts, but are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals, free during your trial and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, It by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid. But between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Steven Weber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? No problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. Welcome back. In our first segment, we covered Captain John Cleve Sims Jr. A, um, what would you call him, Carrie? An eccentric. An eccentric from the early 19th century who uh, published a circular, mailed it out to everyone he could, and then uh, traveled the country trying to convince people to give him enough money to explore the Arctic for polar holes. <laughs> now, it should be noted, Carrie, that... Um, that concept has persisted. The the polar holes have persisted into some mo- other modern hollow earth ideas. Uh, they're derisively called Sims holes after John Sims Jr. himself. Mm-hmm. 
also has uh, uh, popped up in science fiction from time to time. Listen, if there are polar holes, he's got his name all over him. But now I'd like to tell you about Cyrus Teed. Sure. Cyrus Teed was a doctor who was born in 1839. And in um, the late 1860s, he was practicing what he called eclectic medicine from his own practice in Utica, New York. Eclectic medicine was a popular term at the time, and it referred to herbal remedies and stuff kind of mixed with like actual medicine. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of a what we would call today a new age thinker, I suppose, Mr. Teed, Dr. Teed. And Dr. Teed, uh, and the Electric Mayhem, presumably, <laughs> did a lot of weird experiments. Um, I don't want to be judgmental saying weird, but he was trying to do like alchemy, like turning metal into gold. Um, Fairly weird. A lot of his treatments involved uh, magnetism and sometimes high levels of electricity. He was once doing an experiment, thankfully not involving any patient beside himself, with electricity in autumn 1869 when he badly shocked himself and passed out. While Teed was unconscious, he dreamed of being visited by a divine spirit who revealed that he was the Messiah. They always do. And by the time he had woken, Cyrus Teed had vowed to apply his scientific knowledge to, quote, redeem humanity. And he changed his name to the version of Cyrus found in the Hebrew Bible, which is an, a name with no problematic connotations whatsoever, Koresh. Oh boy. Koresh Teed went out into the world and started to preach his cellular cosmogony, which stated that the sun is an invisible electromagnetic battery revolving in the center of the universe on a 24-year cycle. The sun we see, Carrie, only a reflection, just like the moon. A reflection of what? Of the actual sun, which is too far away uh, for us to see it, way in the center of the universe. Um, the stars are all reflecting off of seven mercurial disks floating in the center of the sphere. The Earth has three separate atmospheres, obviously. The first one's... Uh, oxygen and nitrogen that's what we're breathing here carrie uh but there's a, a hydrogen atmosphere above us and further above that in the center of the sphere is an arboron atmosphere arboron yeah that's a typo that they made in their literature i don't know if they mean boron <laughs> okay they say the earth shell is 100 miles thick and has 17 layers the outer seven being metallic with a gold rind on the outermost layer. <laughs> the middle five are mineral and the five inward ones are, are rock. Mm -hmm. So if you dig far enough, you'll, you'll hit gold, I guess. But remember that inside the shell is all life in the universe and outside an endless void. Wow. Okay. Um, so he electrocuted himself till he passed out and then had a weird trip where a being called him the messiah and that made him believe in the hollow earth yeah and that we're living on the inside of the hollow earth you do you cyrus he also believed that human beings could achieve immortality through reincarnation but only if they were completely celibate i'm having a feeling that this wasn't difficult for mr cyrus teed you mean Koresh Teed, who, by the way, was convinced he was the seventh Messiah, Jesus being the sixth. 
Okay. So it was time to think of a good, low-key, serious name that will help him be taken seriously as a serious scientist and religious leader with this movement. He already changed his name. No, no, no. A name for the theory. Oh. (laughs) For this new religion. And so what's a name that, that speaks dignity, Carrie? How about Koreshanity? Oh, like Lin Sanity. Yeah, it sounds like um, like the like a Beatlemania version of David Koresh. It's literally saying, "Here's my name combined with insanity." Please believe me. He started the Koreshian Unity in New York in eighteen in the eighteen seventies and started preaching Koreshanity to a few followers. But oh things didn't really pick up until Koresh had moved to Chicago. Where, following his te- his preachings of communal living, a commune actually did start in Chicago around Koresh in 1888, and a second one in Chicago in 1902. So he had two communal, like, societies of people living there. Well, he uh, bailed and went to Florida, where he started another community in 1894. So this guy was in Chicago around the same time as H.H. H. Holmes. That's interesting. I hadn't considered the connection to the World's Fair. Although I wonder if the World's Fair played into his like um, utopian planned community at all. Because once he had gone to Florida, Teed and his followers built their New Jerusalem, as he called it. In uh, the region of Estero, Florida. Uh, I looked this up. It's on the west side of the state, about a three-hour drive from Vero Beach, where we'll be this weekend. <laughs> Dr. Teed and his followers imported exotic plants like bamboo, um, eucalyptus, mango, tons of wildflowers, and uh, false monkey puzzle trees from Australia. They drop, like, football-sized seed pods on the ground. False monkey puzzle trees? Yeah. That sounds like something from one of your LucasArts video games. The Secret of Monkey Island? <laughs> yeah. False monkey puzzle trees. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was named in another language. You think? So they basically decked this place out looking like a tropical island. They published their own newspaper, The Flaming Sword. By a few years later, they had built a bakery, general store, concrete works, power plant, and a world college of life. Where so this was educated. a regular teed town. It was a full-on teed town. The day-to-day operations were run by seven women known as the Seven Sisters from their communal dwelling, a house called the Planetary Court. So when do all these people kill themselves? It was a lot more peaceful than that. I, you know what they did do? In 1897, they organized the Koreshian Geodetic Survey, and they spent five months um, measuring a beach with a device they called a rectilineator. It's don't make don't make that face. It's I, not what you think it is. You know, the rectilineator. He, he's not very good at naming things, Sean. The rectilineator. I've seen pictures of it. it. It's basically a very long level, like carpenter's level on on uh, saw horses, basically. And they spent five months moving this thing down the beach, convinced that if you kept the the premise, Caroline, is that if you keep a stick completely level and move it forward, it will eventually touch the ground because the earth is concave mm-hmm. and not convex as the um these ra- as these outer earthers will have you believe concave being sloping up we're inside it mm-hmm. so they wanted to prove that yeah by just moving this 
level far enough that eventually it hit, hit the ground. They never published their results, but uh, Teed said confidently that they were exactly as he had predicted. So sure, everything sure. above board there. Both of the Chicago communities were eventually folded into the Florida one, and from 1903 to 1908, during its kind of golden age, um, New Jerusalem had over 250 residents. And they even ran some candidates for the local county government, although they never won. Hey, he probably has more listeners than we do. 250? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> currently, yes, that's true. Um, but let me tell you about life in the unity. There were three levels of membership. There's always levels and spheres oh, and all this shit. There have to be. Oh, you'll love all the lingo here. <sighs> At the outer level, you had uh, non-believers who still wanted to work within the community. And they were allowed to marry whoever they want, um, participate just in kind of secular activities in the community. Um, and they were called patrons of equation. At the middle level, you had the Department of Equitable Administration, who were fully in on communal living and attending worship services uh, with with the good doctor. Uh, marriage was allowed for these people, but sex is only for procreation. Underline, underline. And at the core level, you had the preeminent unity, and these were the higher level community members who were totally celibate. I don't understand how celibacy... <sighs> How does that correspond with any of this? What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean what I mean? How does it correspond? You mean how does it relate to the hollow earth? Yes. Well, Carrie, obviously, if you have sexual intercourse, especially if it's not for procreation, then your holy essence won't be reborn within the sphere to another role on that sphere. Uh, okay. They always bring sex into it, whether it's you have to have sex with me to get to heaven, or you can't have sex so you can get to heaven. It doesn't seem like Koresh Teed was having any sex, and I can't... It's I, doubtful, Sean. I can't confirm whether or not he got into heaven, but I can tell you that he died on December 22nd, 1908. How'd he die? From lingering injuries, it seems like he may have tried to break up a fight between a few of his followers when they were on, like, a, a day trip into the, like, city. Oh. Um, but that was unclear, because I saw, one of the dates I saw for that, like, fight and injury was, like, two years before this, so it seemed weird I thought to it me. would be something like he tried to jump into a hole and it didn't work out. No, it wasn't, like, a leap of faith situation <laughs> or anything like, like that. Um... Obviously, his followers anxiously awaited his resurrection because Teed had written in his book, The Immortal Manhood, that he would be resurrected possibly after a few days, uh, followed by him and all of his followers returning bodily to heaven together. They always say that. The resurrection never came, and two days of standing vigil later, the body started to rot. After Christmas, county health officers stepped in and ordered burial of the body. Yikes. Teed was buried in a tomb on the south end of Estero Island until 1921 when a hurricane destroyed his tomb and washed his coffin out to sea, never to be seen again. Hopefully, out past the waves, he found some peace out there in the center of this crazy, crazy hollow world we all clearly live inside. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, Flaming Sword was published until the printing press burned down in 1949. That's a long time. And the last living follower of Korashanity was Hedwig Michelle. Hedwig Michelle? That sounds like a drag queen. Hedwig, M-I-C-H-E-L, was the last Koreshian, and she deeded the colony to the state of Florida in 1961. Holy moly. It's now the Koreshian State Historic Site. I already Googled it. It would be a three-hour drive for us this weekend <laughs> if you wanted to go look. Oh. Uh, now, Hedwig herself, this is interesting, had joined Koreshanity after fleeing Nazi persecution in Germany which is where she had learned of Korishanity. So the guy was pretty much long dead by the time she joined. Yes. Wow. And she learned she heard about it in Germany. Wow. Okay. She ended up continuing to live there on the land even after she deeded it to the state. She lived there until her death in 1981. She is buried there. She's the only Koreshan buried in the park. Although there are two Koreshian cemeteries nearby, it's been noted that they're not very well taken care of because these people believed they were going to be resurrected somewhere else anyway. So you don't have to worry about this body, lawn care and things like that? You're getting a new body. You're getting a new model. Mm. You don't bury your old car. Well, I mean, it's not a terrible way to go about death. But how did she hear about Koreshanity in 1940 in Germany? I don't know. They had a lot of interesting ideas over there. Interesting, and I'm not talking about the Nazis. <laughs> I'm talking about their ideas of the occult and everything. Well, I have to cite a paper by a Dwayne Griffin from Bucknell University on, on this, but there were several German thinkers and philosophers and scientists writing about the hollow earth in the middle of the 20th century. Um, one of them, one of the best known, was Peter Bender. Now, Bender had allegedly read some, some of The Flaming Sword, the magazine or newspaper from uh, Koresh and his followers, uh, mixed in with American magazines in a French POW camp during World War I. Wow. Okay. He was fascinated by these ideas. He started preaching them, I think, in the prison camp, and then after he left and got back to Germany, he kind of struck out all the religious stuff and the not having sex. He was like, this not having sex is lame. <laughs> he struck all that stuff. You got he knew that what right, Peter. Um, and Peter called his version of this, um, Hohwelteir. Sorry? Hohwelteir. It's hollow earth doctrine in, in German. Hohwelteir. Wow. Um, Made up a whole word for it. Yeah, and this Hohwelteir is the term that he coined and it's the one that you'll always see used in germany when they're talking about this or whole theory Koreshanity or whatever uh doesn't really doesn't really make catch sense <laughs> no but my point is peter like, who's Koresh? but i think peter bender was very oh it's a jewish name too that probably wouldn't have been a a great thing at uh, that time oh yeah so yeah rebrand rebrand it well, Bender had a tough time with the Nazis, too. Um, he got just enough support to get two tests of his theory, being a, a veteran of the First World War. In 1933, apparently the Nazis launched a rocket straight up, assuming that it would, if launched far enough, hit the other side of the world. So they were testing Bender's theory. Yeah, he got in the ear of some high-placed... Uh, uh, some high-placed guys in the German Naval Research Institute. All right, we will 
can launch it straight up if you want. And the thought was this would allow them to hit enemy targets on the opposite side of the world. It was only tested once, failed to launch, and ended up landing a few meters from the launch pad. Yeah, they tried a lot of things. Now, somehow Bender also got introduced to Herman Goring. Oh, boy. And through, once again, his connections with the German Naval Research Institute, he managed to get up the flagpole a plan to search for British ships with an expedition to the Baltic Sea. Now, yeah. where's the Baltic Sea? Uh, the Baltic Sea is kind of in between Eastern Europe and Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was that they would be able to view troop movements on the other side of Europe by just heading out into the Baltic Sea and using very powerful electromagnetic telescopes to look straight up. Hmm. Because, of course, if you pointed it in the right direction, you're going to hit your target on the other side of the world there at some point. If you're using infrared light, you know, you might be able to see the heat signatures of British ships half a world away. Mm-hmm. How do you think that um, worked? Uh, not. It, it didn't work. It didn't. It, <laughs> it was an embarrassing failure for Goring. It was an embarrassing failure for the German military. And Peter Bender. It was an embarrassing failure for him that led to himself, his family, and some of his followers all being killed in death camps before the end of the war. Jesus Christ. Because the telescope experiment didn't work. Wow. Uh, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Makes it a lot less funny. It does make it a lot less funny. I was hoping, I when I looked into the history of the Nazis and um, Hollow Earth theory, I was hoping to get, like, Hitler expeditions below ground to make contact with the Society of the Vril or something like sure, that. Sure, Atlantis bullshit. Yep, none of that. Uh, now, lots of um, New Agey writers throughout the 20th century connected the Hollow Earth to, um, that's where, it, like, it's a great excuse for like, yeah, that's where, they, after all these Mu, Hyperborea, Atlantis, after these ancient civilizations existed, where did they go? It just got sucked into the earth. Hollow Earth, you know, Kong Country. <laughs> Kong Country. Um, so that's kind of the context in which it's been used, you know, since since this time. There there is no modern. It's not like Flat Earth, where it's become a a modern trendy internet conspiracy theory. There's really not much traction for uh, the Hollow Earth, and well, now I have seen some things. I think I forwarded you an interview that I saw on the Ticking Talk, mm -hmm. uh, conducted by George Norrie of Coast to Coast, interviewing yes. a hollow earth expert, mm -hmm. and he was giving his um, facts, I guess, to back up why hollow earth is, is a relevant theory. Yes. So some people do believe this. Yes, and- um, Currently. Yeah, and there's, there continues to be discussion about it um, that's, you know- Largely viewed as pseudoscience by the by the science by the square scientific community, um, but so the hollow earth that Edmund Halley talked about mm -hmm. doesn't. It's tough to make it work because we know how dense the earth is. Sure, I mean we only know that through math. So if our math is all wrong, right? Maybe. Um, but interestingly, the hollow earth of Peter Bender or uh, Koresh Teed is actually more feasible because 
that could be going on right now. And we wouldn't know it just as long as all laws of science and physics, including the way light moves, um, are opposite of what they, what we think they are. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, I could be a millionaire if things were opposite the way things are. If all the light we see is bending outward on an angle from the center of a, uh, a cave, then it would make it would make it look as things are now, and we just we just think we're on the outside of a globe. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. This is the kind of talk. This is the kind of talk you get into when you look for um, uh, contemporary hollow Earth thought. Um, there hasn't been the kind of groundswell that there has for the, uh, flat earth. And I, I, I don't know why. Is there any conspiracy thought behind it? Kind of like the flat earth, a lot of the theory revolves around how they're faking mm-hmm. that we have around earth. Why? I don't know. I would have to look into that. But, um, it, it's, it's very much a conspiracy theory of like. The, no, the world really is flat. They don't want you to know. Um, is is there anything like that with contemporary hollow earth where it's like, no, the earth is hollow and they're hiding it because there's such and such in there and they don't want us to find out. You always dip into that. You always dip into that a little bit because if the earth is hollow, someone's got to be covering something up. Sure, someone's got to know the truth. Someone knows the truth and is someone hiding. Someone in power has to know the truth. Cause... Yeah. And if you look around, all the facts make it look an awful lot like we're on the outside of a round, uh, non-hollow Earth. And so, obviously, someone has doctored all the facts to make it look that way. So, conspiracy. Interesting. So, you, you, when you're peddling, when you're going along with something this crazy... I don't mean crazy because I because I'm like it's definitely you know I'm I'm not even being judgmental when I say that. Just going against known facts and logic. Flying in the face of everything you know to be true when you look around you, even just in the distance, you can see the curve of the Earth, right? Even just looking up, you can see the sky. I guess that that doesn't that might just be the in like right, you know that, when that it's dark in in your your room at night, you look up and that looks like a dark sky. Mm-hmm. So I just could be the the bottom layer of the. Next layer above us, I guess. You're right. I'm convinced. So now we're back to the hollow earth, but you're saying we're at the core? I think we would have to be. No, that wasn't. We were always on the outside. Except in Cyrus Teed's thing where we were on the inside of the crust. So what do you think, Carrie? Are we living um, on the outside or potentially just inside just inside the, the rim of a, uh, of a hollow sphere hurtling through space? Until something proves otherwise, no. <laughs> we are living in a, in a dense uh, earth with a, a crust and a mantle and a core, as far as we know. Um, but I don't. I think there's more proof of the crust and mantle and the core than there is a hollow earth with mole people civilizations inside and, and a Kong. Yeah. <laughs> area. Yeah. And as cults go, you know, Koreshanity isn't, it's not the sexiest thing in the world, but it's not. It's it's pretty sexless. But it's not the worst, it's not the worst cult I've ever seen. These guys just mostly wanted to measure a beach, it sounds like. And <laughs> not super nefarious, so there's that. It always creeps me out when these things get involved in people's sex lives. I think that's kind of crossing a line. 
that's all religions do that too. No, I know. Don't think that's great either. Um, but yeah, I mean, could be worse. What do you think? Is the earth hollow? Well, yeah. I, well, obviously, yeah, because that's where King Kong lives. <laughs> okay, taking Kong out of the equation. Um, I don't know. Florida sounds nice. <laughs> so no. So so it's not. No, no. I don't <laughs> think the Earth is hollow. One of these days, you'll believe something, Sean. This wasn't the one that was going to get me. Certainly, certainly not. <laughs> I think the closest you've ever gotten was the Bridgeport Poltergeist. Um, you know what? Well, let's save it for our 50th special. <gasps> What's that? I don't know. Okay. We've got 10 episodes to plan. <laughs> okay. Okay. Hollow Earth. That's it? You're just going to say Hollow Earth? Hollow Earth. You're just going to say Hollow Earth? It's a statement. Well, until next time, listeners, um, I guess all we have to say is uh, our classic catchphrase, stay hollow. Keep it hollow, baby. Keep it hollow. Hollow it out. Hollow it up. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Hi, Tara. Hi, Nick. I've got a question for you. A hypothetical question. Here for it. If you and I were to make a podcast... Why would we make a podcast? Why does anyone make a podcast? Massive egos. Anyway. If you and I were to make a podcast... Right, so if we were to make a podcast where we ask each other hypothetical questions... (laughs) Wait, so not only is this a podcast about listening to an old married couple argue, it's explicitly about nonsense? That's right. Okay, I'm with you so far. So what would we call this hypothetical podcast? Well, I think we'd call it Unloaded Questions, a podcast about lighthearted musing and loving debate. And excellent accent work. With your co-hosts, Nick and Tara. Now, babe, why would anyone listen to a podcast like this? Well, maybe after a year locked inside their own houses, people want a break from heavy news or serial killers and just want to wonder how many Sasquatch eye it would take to successfully capture Nessie. I think it's Sasquatches. It's a Latin root. I'm pretty sure it's Sasquatch eye. Unloaded Questions, with your hosts, Nick and Tara, dropping Wednesday at a podcatcher near you. Hey, Tara, what's a group of Sasquatch Eye called? A Foot Clan. Nick, people are going to have to hear this ad more than once. Foot Clan. It's time to take a trip to the Bizarre Bazaar. Massachusetts lobster diver Michael Packard is recovering from injuries this week from being swallowed up, then spit back out by a humpback whale. 
Is that his words? You said it like it was a quote. No, that was my shock and awe. <laughs> As a licensed commercial lobster diver, Packard makes his living bringing up lobsters from the bottom of the ocean. In this case, off the coast of Provincetown, Massachusetts at Herring Cove Beach. About 10 feet from the seafloor, Packard was swallowed whole by a humpback whale. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. This is a real, a real Jonah situation. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I felt this huge shove, and the next thing I knew, it was completely black. I could sense I was moving, and I could feel the whale squeezing with the muscles in his mouth, recalled Packard. So he was in his mouth. Mm-hmm. At first, he thought he had been gobbled up by a great white shark, but hadn't been bitten and couldn't feel any teeth. I was completely inside. It was completely black, Packard said. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. All I could think of was my boys. They're 12 and 15 years old. Oh. Packard began to struggle, and the whale shook its head back and forth, which made Packard feel that he wasn't really enjoying the sensation. <laughs> the who, the whale? Yeah. Yeah, you think, Packard? So he kept struggling for 30 to 40 seconds until the whale resurfaced, threw its head from side to side, and the next thing Packard knew, he was back in the water. Wow. Packard was picked up by crewman Josiah Mayo and brought straight to Cape Cod Hospital with a lot of soft tissue damage, but no broken bones. For the whale's part, this was probably a mistake, as whales have never offered proof of being aggressive towards humans. Probably just had its mouth wide open for some good yummy krill and ended up getting Michael Packard in there as well. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> yeah. For Packard's part, well, he plans on getting back to diving just as soon as he's fully healed. And according to his Reddit AMA a couple days ago, he'd like Matt Damon to play him in the inevitable movie. That's not a good movie. <laughs> but it's fun. It's mostly just black. Just an hour of black right in the middle where he's... It's an art film. Also, he was only in there for less than a minute. An hour would be generous. Well, then this is going to be a really short movie, I have to tell you. Yeah, Matt Damon can probably fit this in. <laughs> so we're glad that Michael's doing all right. Absolutely, Mike. Wow, it's the best bar story ever. Yeah, if you're not drinking for free on that for the rest of your life... Um... Get better friends, right? Really. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Yeah, and come and join us on Patreon. We're having a lot of fun over there. Uh, we just recorded another mini-sode. We're getting those up on... Um, I think we're going to try to get those up on a, at least a, bi a at least a bi-weekly basis and then pepper mm -hmm. in some other fun um, fun content for you. Reaction. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. And pepper in some other fun content. And pepper in some other fun content for you, too. Um, special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, <laughs> Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, and our newest patron, Alex Nakutis. Thanks so much for joining us, Alex. I uh, play board games with Alex from time to time. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys so much. 
See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can check Kyle out at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.